Did you girls see that? We all passed our health checks in seconds. I'm not home, so it must be that I have a better signal down at the beach than in my room at home. (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, Casey's recording from the beach, so I wish we all could be her. I know. It's almost like our laptops and our computers knew that this was an important episode, and they were like, we're going to be there for it. (laughs) Oh, I love it. This is such a good one. We got to speak with Jay Scott Smith about so many different aspects of broadcasting and journalism and more than anything, sharing your story in such a compelling way and how to do that and how that can impact you as either with your personal brand or with your business. Yeah, he's definitely a professional storyteller. And when you listen to him, it's just so evident that this is truly the work that he was born to do. And it was just such a fun conversation with him to have. And, you know, it's great to listen to him, too, because as new podcasters, I feel like even just from listening to him or listening to his own podcast, you can pick up so many tips, too. Yeah, and this is part one of two parts because our whole conversation was an hour and 45 minutes and it almost split evenly into our conversation about storytelling and our conversation about social injustices. And because both of them are so important, we wanted to split the episode into two parts so that they're more easily digestible so everybody can take the time to listen to them. Right. And part one and part two are both so, so important. So we wanted wanted to make sure that everyone heard the whole entire thing. And what I appreciate so much from part one, which you guys are about to listen to, is that he's so open and honest about his challenges and the struggles that he's faced. And these challenges have made him so so resilient. And they've been really crazy, pivotal times in his life. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear his story, and it's going to be a really awesome episode. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to the Flourish We Grow Together podcast. This is Laura DeFrancesco, founder and CEO of Flourish Coworking Space and Dean Street Law. Flourish is a lush, sustainable, and inspiring space to co-work, host events, and more than anything, join community. We're located in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and brought to you globally through the We Grow Together podcast and our online community. We are so thankful to have all of you in community with us to join us today for this podcast. I'm here with my co-hosts, Lindsay DeFrancesco and Casey Fluharty. Hi, everyone. It's Lindsay, the co-founder of Flourish. And I am Casey, the community manager of Flourish. And we're so, so excited today to have Jay Scott Smith here with us. He's an award-winning veteran broadcaster, journalist, and writer, incredible human, great soul. Thank you, Jay, so much for joining us. Hey now, how's it going? It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to do this. And uh, honestly, I consider it an honor being able to being asked to come on and do this. And Flourish is such a wonderful place. And I really appreciate you allowing me to have done my podcast with you because full disclosure, Laura came on my podcast, Jay Scott Confidential, back in January, which seems like it was 
five years ago now with everything else that's going on. But she came on and she couldn't have been more gracious. She's one of the sweetest people in the world. And I just appreciate you having me on here and letting me be a part of what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so funny. We were connected through some common friends and through your work as well with what is the name of the company again? Well, the company that I was kind of doing some business with, it was like multiple companies. Uh, And I think that was like a tie in to even the company that I've just started myself. I've just also started my own media company called JSC Media. And I had started doing some work with them. And just by chance, your name came up in a conversation and said, hey, you should really talk to Laura. And I, as soon as I talked to you, I was like, oh, no, she's great. That's the first thing that popped in my head. I was like, she's great. And finding out more and more about you as we went along, it was just, that's really how it all kind of started. And this is back in January. So it's been six months, but it feels like it's been, like I said, it feels like it's been so much longer since January with everything else that's gone on, but also to see how much you guys have grown with what you're doing with Flourish and everything else that I just kind of felt like I was the right place, right time when I ran into you. I know, truly. I think the world brings like-minded souls together in such a funny way. And it's great because you, you're you so close. I mean, you're in Philadelphia and then you also teach at Lincoln University, but also you're from the Midwest. So can you share more about your career and life and what brought you into journalism and consulting and over here to Philadelphia as well? Sure. So for people who are just getting to know me, hi, Jay Scott Smith. I was um I was born in Detroit, Michigan. I was born and raised in the city of Detroit, Michigan. And I grew up in Detroit in the 1980s and 90s. I'm 40 years old, even though anybody who sees me, they won't believe it because nobody believes I'm 40 years old when they look at me. But I you don't look like it. <laughs> I, I grew up in Detroit and my whole love for radio and journalism because it's like the the two always were kind of meant to meet somewhere. I go back to when I was four years old and one of the first Christmas gifts that I can really remember getting was the small radio where you could record stuff. And I'm again, I'm four. I'm just, just this little dude walking around with this box. And I always thought radio was just a box that people were inside and they were talking. And I was just trying to say, like, you got to let the people out. You got to let the people out. There's people in here. There's little people in the box. And I just kept thinking there's little people in the box. And as I found out what it was, like, I thought one day I'd love to be one of those little people in the box talking. I didn't get interested in the journalism side of things until my uncle, my late uncle Harvey, used to babysit me because my mom would work and they would go out. And occasionally I would spend the night with my aunt and uncle. And they've, they've both since passed away, unfortunately. But my uncle Harvey... He used to, he was, he managed a dry cleaner on the west side of Detroit, not far from uh, Livernoy Avenue, not far from uh, Seven Mile Road in Detroit. So he would come home and he would sit down in his chair. He had this old chair. And here I am, this little boy just bouncing around the house, just doing whatever little boys tend to do. And he would, I was, I was a quick learner. I've always been a quick learner. I knew how to read by the time I was two. So I, I could read, talk, and I was always kind of, into everything. Like smart kids are always into everything, apparently. And he wanted to basically find a way to shut me up. 
because I would ask a bunch of questions. So he would sit down and he would start reading the newspapers, both the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press. And I would just look at the newspaper for the pictures. And I always had a fascination with baseball. Baseball is my sport. First sport I played, first baseball game I ever went to was in 1983. I was four years old. So I was obsessed with pictures of baseball players, baseball fields, and the Detroit Tigers were really good at the time. So I always wanted to see the pictures of the baseball players. So my uncle started to show me how to read through reading the newspaper. And I'm introduced through sports pages. And I told this story at his, uh, at his funeral a few years ago. I would not be into journalism right now if he hadn't shown me how to read a newspaper at four years old. Because he showed me where the standings were, where the baseball standings were. 1984, the Tigers won the World Series. So I would always see Detroit on top. And I would always just think that's the... I just thought it was so cool. I barely knew much, but I knew where I was. And he would show me the pictures and showing me the numbers. And I would, and little by little, I would start reading some of it on my own. And my mom would wonder, where did he get this from? It's like, well, he learned from when Harvey comes in and lets him sit there and read the newspaper with him. Then my mom buys me a dictionary for my birthday and tells me, whenever you hear a word, because at this point I'm in kindergarten, whenever you hear a word that you don't know, ask your teacher to spell it for you. Write it down and you could look up the meaning of it in this book. So I would carry it around everywhere. And that's what got me interested in words and in writing and everything else. It's just since I was a little kid, that's all I was into was writing and words and baseball. That was like my three things. And I was always into those three things where by the time I got to high school, I was already on our school's newspaper staff and I was playing sports. So I was like a sports reporter who played sports. It was weird. And I was always there. I I got my first job as a high school intern at the Detroit Free Press, the paper I had been reading since I was four. I got a job as an intern there when I was 16 years old. This is 1995. So I got my first paycheck in journalism as a 16-year-old. So when I tell people I've been doing this for 24 years, they think I'm making it up. It's like, no, I've been getting paid to write since I was 16 years old because this is all I ever wanted to do. And it all started in Detroit. I eventually go to Michigan State University and I'm kind of lost because, you know, when you're in college, you want to do so many different things and your mind gets all opened up. Laura is a superstar. She went to college and was laser focused. I was a bit of a wandering. (laughs) I was kind of lost in the weeds and I didn't know if I wanted to write or if I wanted to do radio, if I wanted to do TV. I dabbled in radio. I'd always wanted to do a hip hop show. I had been focused on doing radio shows and doing stuff like that since, again, 15, 16 years old. There was a rap radio show I listened to religiously, and I always said if I ever got a shot to do that, I would do it. But I never knew anything about radio. I go and get a degree in journalism and communication, but that was as a writer. So when I graduated from Michigan State, I went to this broadcast school just outside of Detroit called the Specs Howard School of Broadcast Arts. It's still Now it's the Specs Howard School of Media Arts because they've added a lot of digital elements to it. But at that time, it was still broadcast arts. I had never done a day in radio. I had grown up being mocked and made fun of because of how I sounded because of my voice. I sounded like this, like this voice you hear has been here since I was 13 years old. Try that on when you're trying to call the house to call my dad. And here's this big baritone 13 year old answering the phone. And they're like, hey, Robert. So first thing I was like, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're talking for no, this is Jason. Like, this is Jason. Like, yeah. Oh, you well, where? Where's your dad? Oh, well, give me a second. How old are you, son? I just turned 13. Look, let me just go get him. (laughs) What are you doing? So I, I sounded like this since I was a teenager and I used to get a lot of crap for it. 
to the point where even though people love my voice and our high school did a radio show because the Detroit Public Schools used to have a radio station and every school, every high school in the city would do a news report and like five schools a day would be on there. And when it was the day for us, Renaissance High School, I was the lead anchor. So it probably foreshadowed a lot of things, but as I'm the, I'm the lead anchor. And by the time I get to now 2003, I'm in my early 20s. I'm petrified about getting in front of crowds. I've been mocked for years about my voice. And it's a lot. Some of that we'll get to in like maybe the discussion about race later on, too. But I get a lot of crap about my voice. And I'm so nervous that when I read this commercial in front of this class for the first time, I'm mentally prepared, for lack of a better term, for somebody to be a smart ass and take a shot at my voice. And this guy raises his hand and he says, okay, look. We see what's going on here. You got some professional to walk in this room and act like a student. And I'm shocked because no one's ever said that to me. 24 years old or 23 years old at that point. No one's ever said that to me. Uh, And I just looked around like, what? Like, yeah, like this dude's clearly like a professional. There's like, hear his voice. He's clearly professional. You worked in radio. And even the instructor looked at me. He's like, have you done this before? I was like, no, it's the first time I've done this. And that amount of encouragement went so far with me because for the first time, I didn't feel like an outcast. And okay, I can do this. I can do this radio thing. And I got my first radio internship the following year at the sports station in Detroit. And that allowed me to actually be in the building when the Pistons won the NBA title in 2004. And I said, I knew right then, this is what I want to do. This is what I, this is it. And the next year I got a job back in Lansing, Michigan. And 15 years later, I'm still in radio. And my story is so long and winding. We'd be here for three hours, but that's like the abridged version (laughs) Of how I got there, the way I landed in Philly was I had bounced between doing radio and newspaper. And after I got my master's degree, I'd gone back more into the journalistic end of things. I'd worked for NBC. They have a website. Well, they had a website called The Griot. They're independent now, but at the time, NBC owned them. So it allowed me to go around the country and cover major events. I covered a World Series. I was a part of the coverage of the 2012 presidential election. I was able to cover major stories that affected my community around the Midwest in Detroit and Chicago and St. Louis and Cincinnati and Louisville and places like that. And I was able to do all this. And then when Comcast sold off Grio, a lot of us lost our gigs. I worked for a newspaper in Michigan for a little while and I got offered a job in New Jersey in 2014 and I moved east. And then after one year, I moved to Philadelphia and I've been in Philly for the last five years. That's just part of the adventure. I guess I've got this long story. And now that I've started to think about it, I don't I didn't think I realized how deep my story really is. And I've sat here and filibustered for like 12 minutes and I apologize for that. But I just... I think when it comes to my story, it's like I could almost write a book on it, but it would it, it would take so long to go through. But that's the I'd say that's the abridged version of how we got here. But I know you guys have more questions and I, I could probably answer them better because I could ramble on for hours about me. And I don't want to I don't want to do that. <laughs> I just feel weird. I'm so used to asking questions that to be to be on the receiving end. It's kind of different for me. Sure. But it's a good thing because I think it's a really incredible thing for people to hear your story. And you have such an eloquent way of telling your story, having the background that you do, and such incredible gifts that you received from your uncle providing you with the newspaper, to your mom providing you with the dictionary, to the boost of confidence when you got into broadcasting. I think those little guides that we have in life show up to support us into what we're drawn to. And I certainly encourage you to write your book, and it might even be easier for you to write it 
just by speaking it first and then having that dictated through one of the automatic dictations technologies. But you have such an incredible story. And one of the biggest things that I recall from you and I meeting at Flourish was when you shared with me how you turned around the performance of a particular radio show based on understanding the audience and the demographics in such an incredible way, which can change any business, whether it's a radio show or a law firm or whatever the business may be. Can you share more about how you understood how to do that and the changes that you made? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's um. so what you're referring to is when I went to my job in Lansing, Michigan, it was at a radio station, the call letters are WQHH. They are uh, Power 96.5 WQHH, number one for hip hop and R&B. They were the only hip hop and R&B station in the market, but I digress. But our thing was at the time, they were looking for a hit in terms of a radio show. So this is 2005, 2006. And I'm this green as grass rookie walking into radio. But I've always had an understanding of demographics. It's the thing about when you work in radio, whether it's in radio, television, podcasting, if you're running a website, YouTube page, you have to know your audience. You got to know who you're dealing with. You got to know who you're talking to. And I came in and I was given a show late on a, a late night Saturday show. And they didn't have anybody. They had just lost. They had this contract for the syndicated show. They got rid of it and they decided to go back to local. And I just happened to be organizing some stuff in a closet. And I got called in by the program director. And he's like, all right, you ever thought of doing your own show? Uh, Sure. Well, cool. Guess what? Two weeks from Saturday, you got your own show. You got to come up with a name and have an idea for it. Uh, Okay. Not realizing that for a decade, I had been plotting getting my own radio show. And I knew that... I had to think immediately of, okay, if this is a show that runs 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. on a Saturday, who are my, who's my audience? A lot of people are going out to parties or you can have college students who are at home studying or people are just kind of hanging out in their basement. If it's the summertime, they could be in their car. They could be at the park. They could be cruising up highways. So now that I know who I'm, who my base is, how do I appeal to them? If you're doing a rap radio audience, for example, and I just use that. A rap radio audience, at least in 2006, it might have changed a little bit since then, but they tend to run in the same circles. They tend to aim for two specific audiences. In terms of Nielsen ratings, they are aiming for anybody age 12 and up, and specifically women age 24 to 54. But in that particular time slot, they are also into men. And you understand men about the age of, say, 18 to about 28 or 30. I was 26 at the time, so I knew what I wanted to hear, and I was also in tune with women, and I knew what they wanted to hear. So my thing was, you gave me free reign to come up with a show, so how about I cater to the audience? I cater to the people that are listening. That show did well enough that a year later, I got moved to a better time slot. So now I'm on from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., and now I get, okay, I've got a different set of audience here, because now I've got kids involved. I've got younger audiences involved. The music has changed in just a year's time, but I still want to bring that audience that was listening to me late nights back here with me. So what do you do? You start to come up with a plan of, all right, this show is going to be a little bit of everything. The first hour of this show is going to be catered more towards your 12 and ups and your women. The music that they would be more into, a little less hip hop, a little more R&B, a little more new stuff. Put that all together. But as kind of a olive branch to my older listeners, I start every show with a throwback hip hop song. 
everyone. First song you hear is something from the late 80s, early 90s, and it draws people in. I played a song called The Mission by a rapper named Special Ed, and I played it to start the show. And I'm in there. And normally we don't get calls from callers until after the first few songs have played and people try to go and call and get requests in. I play that song. I do my intro. I go into the first song of the first hour and I have a phone call already coming in from this guy who's in his car and he's in his car with his kid. And he says to me, he's like, man, I don't listen to this station much, but this is the first time I've listened to y'all. And I haven't heard that song since I was in high school. Are you here every week? And I told him, yeah, man, I'm here every week then brother, you got yourself a listener. I'm taking my kid to the mall and I hear that song come through and we're both getting with it. And it's like, that's, that's when I knew I had something. Knowing your audience is so key that we took that time slot late night, which was barely even registering on Nielsen and Arbitron at the time to a point where it was the top show in the market. And they moved me down to the new time slot, the better time slot, where for the longest we were running fourth or fifth after one after one book, we jumped to number one. We'd passed the country station, which was the number one station in the market. And they had been in that spot for about I think, seven, eight years. And we passed them within three months because we got people interested. And my whole thing was, I want to be in tune to as many people as possible. You may not like everything, but you'll like this. Or I know that I'm going to do the same thing every week. It's consistency. If you know your audience, you have to be consistent every week. They have to know that at seven o'clock, I'm playing local talent. They got to know at eight o'clock, we're doing the top 10 songs. They got to know at nine o'clock, my homeboy who's a DJ is going to come in and we're going to spin for an hour. And whatever we choose that particular week is going to be a theme where one week it's all new music. The next week we go totally old school rap music. One week we went old school, like seventies funk music, seventies and eighties R and B music. And that was one of the highest rated nights we ever had because by this point, now we're getting into my late night audience and they're coming in. Knowing your audience is so key that I had a, I had a meeting. Just by chance, I go to a radio station in Detroit. A friend of mine was working there at the time. And she welcomes, she invites me to come to just sit in on their morning show, check everything out. And I just thought it was cool. And I run across the program director of the R&B station in Detroit, Mix 92.3. And she was the program director at the time. And I talked to her. Again, I'm 26 years old. Like, and if you've seen me, I don't think most people would recognize me if I had a full head of hair. But at the time, I had a, a very large afro. I'm this super skinny 26-year-old kid. And I come in there and I sit down in front of this woman and I basically asked her about how the station's doing just because I've always been curious about these things when it comes to that, because I've always had an ear for this because I love the station. I grew up listening to it, the rap station WJLB. And I asked her, so I know that the station is like old school R&B, right? But have you thought of at some point starting to integrate like old school hip hop into the rotation because your audience is changing? And she looked at me kind of sideways. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, well, your, your core audience are women aged 25 to 54 with the median being somewhere around 30 to about 35 to 40. And this is 2006. So it's like, let's just assume like or 2006, if your median age is 35, it means you were born 1971. So you didn't start really getting into music till probably the mid to late 1980s. So say about 86, 87, 88. That's when rap music starts to take off. So as much as people like Al Green and as much as people like the Isley Brothers and the Spinners, I wasn't even alive for that. And I love that music. You got to start thinking about these people are hitting their teen years in the early 90s and they're going to college in the early 90s. So they're listening to rap music. They're listening to more than just new edition. They're also listening to NWA. They're rolling with 
with like not just Bobby Brown, but there's Bell Biv DeVoe, which was rap music. They they had all these different things. You have Ice Cube coming through. You have all these New York rappers. You have start if they're a little bit older, maybe 40, then you're going back to the back end of the 80s. Just I just threw that out there. It's like I'm not even saying start playing Tupac or the Notorious B.I.G. or something like that, even though the back end of your audience who's 25 probably would be reticent to that, too. You don't want to overcompensate by having your older audience and neglect the younger ones because the older ones are going to age out and the current younger audience is going to move into that prime slot. So I figure why not just start doing that now and you might be able to expand your listener base exponentially. And she looked at me and she looked at me as if I had three heads <laughs> and said, like, basically looked at me as if you don't know what the hell you're talking about, get out of my office. So at the time, 92.3 was number one overall in the rating. So I could understand why she would say, you don't know what you're talking about, get the hell out of my office. But within a year, they had fallen to number six and they had been passed by another radio station that had the same format, but it started playing hip hop. They started going into the early to mid 90s rap music and their audience tripled. Shortly thereafter, Mix 92.3 got rid of that program director and then started doing the exact same thing. Being out in front of these things is like you have to know your audience. You have to know if you if your core demographic is women aged 25 to 35, you need to start looking at what do women in that age range plus you may want to skew two or three years in each direction. What are they into? Are they into fashion? Then find every bit of fashion they're into. What music are are women of that age listening to? What what TV shows are are they into? Know that audience. If you don't know your audience, you're not going to go anywhere. That's why so many people struggle when they start doing podcasts or doing videos. They don't know who their audience is. And if you don't know who your audience is, you're screwed. You can't be just out here on an island. So the secret to my quote unquote success is that I tend to recognize who I'm talking to and that I work around that. Where it's like, okay, I have an idea of what I want to do, so how do I integrate that with this? I'm always willing to kind of work with a system while still getting what I'm trying to do over. So if it means, okay, I've got an audience that's mostly teenagers. I teach at a college, thankfully. Like right now, if you threw me into a radio station or TV station and wanted me to do a show catered toward 20-year-olds, the first thing I would do is I'd ask every single student in one of my classrooms, what are you into? What do you listen to? What do you like? People don't like to do that. They like to make assumptions. And when you make assumptions, it screws you. I prefer to go directly into them like, hey, what are you into? Give me five or six of your favorite artists. Give me five or six of your favorite shows. What is on social media that's trending right now? All these things. I was the first guy on my station to to even go the social media route. This is 2006, so it's MySpace. Facebook hasn't even really taken off yet. It's MySpace. Nobody had a MySpace page at that station. And my show had become so popular that I was thinking, how can I promote this thing outside of just being on the air? And since I was also the lead producer for the station, I produced all the commercials and the PSAs, I would take cuts from highlights from the show and I'd produce kind of a four-minute synopsis of a previous episode. But where am I going to put it? MySpace had started doing those music pages, so I created a MySpace music page for my radio show where I would take the last three weeks of show cuts and put those in that little player that they had with a fourth spot set for like a local rapper or R&B performer to have their song featured. And the page immediately took off where at first they laughed at me in the building. Like, why would you do this? Nobody's going to go to that. Why would anybody go on online just to listen to clips of the show? When they saw the numbers that page did, it became mandated that everybody do it. It's kind of funny how that works. 
I think that that's such good advice and it's so incredible. And especially at 26 year old, six years old to be accomplishing that, that's just amazing. And you have so much knowledge and a lot of natural talent. You can tell that this is a hundred percent what you were born to do. And also you can tell so much hard work has gone into this when you are speaking to your classroom or just what advice would you give to anyone going, wanting to be in this career? Because it's definitely not easy work. Oh, no, no. This is uh, <laughs> the, the tough part about this is, is that I tell everyone to prepare to be rejected a lot. Prepare to hear no a lot. Sometimes prepare to hear no with some expletives surrounding it a lot. And I try not to swear much, but I apologize for the language I'm going to use here. The best phrase I can use is Vince McMahon, who owns the World, World Wrestling Entertainment, was the World Wrestling Federation when I was a kid, is known to tell the people who work for him. Because he has to get every idea through like you have to pass it through him before it ever lands on television or on or on a website. He says to them, you have to be prepared to learn how to eat shit and enjoy the taste of it. That's the thing about being in this business is that you have to eat a lot of it. And sometimes it's not going to be good in the best of circumstances. You have to fight through people telling, you no. you're going to be in a, it's a very competitive industry. And there are going to be people who specifically will see you come in and be immediately intimidated by you. Immediately, they don't like you. You don't, you don't have to say a word to them. You can have all the talent in the world and they see it. It comes through. I've always been a quick learner. I've been self-taught. I taught myself how to edit audio through just practice over and over again. At that broadcast school, they opened up these auxiliary studios every afternoon and anybody could come in. They could pop in front of a computer, turn up the Adobe Audition and start just chopping up audio because we, we were the first group to have digital audio editors. Everybody else had been doing it manually, cutting reel to reel tape and everything like that. I had never seen a digital audio editor before, obviously, but I would come in there every day, two or three hours before class, and I would just sit in there and I would just start recording a bunch of stuff and then chopping it up. And learning how to do it over and over and over again. I'm self-taught in that manner. So two years later, when I stroll into that radio station in Lansing, they're using this old antiquated audio editor that nobody else can really use. And I look on the computer and see the Adobe Audition. I was like, well, hey, you've got this Adobe Audition here. Why don't you use that? Well, nobody knows how to use it. I can use it. That made people real nervous because this kid, and I was 25. I looked like I was 17, but I'm this kid who walks in here and I know how to run this editor. And I've got this voice and I've also been itching to do a rap radio show since I was 15 and I knew the format of it coming in. So when you put me on your, on your radio board and I learn it within an hour and a half, people get nervous. And when they see you have this talent, you have to be prepared to deal with people on the inside of your office, inside of your station who do not want you to succeed. If it doesn't make them money, they don't want to mess with you. And they'll do everything they can to stop you from doing it. Inner office politics are a thing. People like to say, oh, it's kind of overblown. No, that is a thing. That's a way of life. And you have to be able to navigate that. I didn't always handle it well initially. But once you get older and you figure it out, it's like, yeah, this is the, this is the garbage you have to deal with. Now, you don't have to stoop to their level, but this is the garbage you have to deal with. And you have to try to navigate your way through that the best way you can. You have to be prepared to be told no a lot. You got to be willing to compromise and work with people and meld ideas because your creativity is limitless, but it's all about how you are able to execute it because they're not going to give you everything at first. You have to earn that. I had to earn that over the first year I was there. I've had to earn it every single place I've gone. 
whether it's in market 112 in Lansing, Michigan, or market four in Philadelphia. I've had to earn everything I've gotten, and I've had to work hard for that. But a lot of that is also because I'm also willing to kind of let not get totally married to my creativity and to the ideas that I have, or to take the idea that I have and meld it together with maybe the vision of somebody else. That's the thing you got to do. You have to be willing, unless it's your own thing, your own podcast, your own company, then you do whatever the hell you want. But if it's something that you're working at in a group, in a station, newsroom, whatever, be willing to kind of compromise on certain things, but still add your own flair to it or your own edge or essence to it. That's the advice I give anybody. And just be prepared to understand that the first show you do is going to suck. It is going to be terrible. You will think it's the greatest show ever. I thought mine was April 1st, 2005. I thought my show was the greatest thing ever. I heard it that night. I was fired up after I did that show. I listened to it a month later, still thought it was the best thing ever. I heard that show by June, July of 05. I'm like, uh, this was all right. Could have been better. By December of 2005, oh boy, this was a, wow, I've come a long way. One year after that, when I started doing the new show and I heard that first one, I was like, oh God, this is awful. And now I just laugh 15 years later when I hear it. It's just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Who is that? You have to be prepared to know that your first show is likely your worst show, but it's also a foundation. And if it doesn't go well the first week, you've got week two. You've got week three. Build on it. Build on every single one. Don't let yourself get beat because you thought you had a bad night. If you have a bad night, the next one's going to be better. You can't quit. That's my whole thing. I have a phrase that is that I say, stay ready. You don't have to get ready if you stay ready. And part of the thing about staying ready is even if you have a bad day, the next one's going to be better. The next train is coming. So you have to keep, you can't quit no matter what it is, no matter what line of work you're in, no matter if you're in a law firm, you're running a company, you're running like, a, you could be running a convenience store. You could be running a tech company. Your bad day can always be followed by a good one. You can't dwell on that because if you do, it's just going to start a cycle of losing and you don't want to fall into that. So you can't let the best, you can't let your best days get too high and you can't let your worst days kill you because you got to keep an even keel. And that's how I've tried to approach things. And that's what's kind of helped me keep what's left of my sanity the last few years. But that's my idea for what I do. And I think that it honestly applies to every, like everything that you're saying applies to every single industry in our community. A lot of people, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and something that we talk about often is that you're going to fail and you got to get back up again, whether it's being turned away from something or you're actually failing on your first um, show or something like that. You just got to keep showing up and giving it your all. And I love that you said, stay ready because it's something that we can all apply to our lives. Oh yeah. It's the, um, I, again, I, I like to compare a lot of things to sports and I use baseball as maybe the biggest metric of that because baseball is, is an analogy for so many things in life. Like one of the best hitters I've seen in my life is a, was a, was a guy named Tony Gwynn. He played in San Diego, played with San Diego Padres. He's considered one of the best overall hitters ever seen in the game, like just pure hitter. Like he gets up there and he can pretty much no matter who's pitching, no matter where it's thrown, he could get on base without even worrying about it. He didn't hit a ton of home runs, but he'd get on base all the time because he could hit. And that always would set off an inning. The best hitters in baseball history may bat 350. Like in just an outstanding season is 350, 360. The best season I've seen was Tony Gwynn hit 394. That's a percentage. 
That's 39.4% of the time when he stepped to the plate, he got a hit. 39.4% of the time. Only one batter, the last man to hit more than 400 was Ted Williams, and that was more than 60 years, almost 70 years ago. Hit 406. That's 40.6%. That means, so 40.6%, my math is probably just a touch off here. So probably like 59.4% of the time, he didn't get a hit. So more than half the time, he, he didn't get on. If you're, you're considered a really good hitter batting 300, that means 70% of the time, you do not get a hit. 70% of the time. Baseball players fail 70% of the time on a good year. So you have to be prepared to take a lot of those L's. And you have to be willing to take it knowing that, yeah, I might have a night where I go 0 for 5. Or I might have a night where I go 1 for 3. But that one hit might be a home run. You can eat the other two if you do well just once. And you can't, you can't allow yourself to get beaten down. And I've had to battle that. I've had to fight that too. I'm not saying it because I just I keep my head up and I roll through this. Oh no. It's like you you have to work through that all the time. It it'll kill you if it doesn't. So you have to be able to kind of be able to sustain that once you have one rough day, you can't let it carry over because you're only as good as your next day. It's the truth and everything else is just it's a learning experience, you know? Like those things build you and they help you grow. Oh, absolutely. And it's a um, growth is the mindset that I've always tried to have. And again, sometimes it's hard and you run into things. Life can get a little difficult and get hectic. I've had some good stretches. I've had some stretches of years like 2011 through 2013 was magnificent for me. About late 2017 to early 2019 sucked. And I mean, when I say sucked, I mean, it went from me kind of being at the top of my game. To, I just won two AP awards and I felt I was growing at the station I was working at in Philadelphia. And then things just precipitously went downhill. Some of that we're probably end up touching on a little bit later, but it precipitously went downhill. And to the point whereby the end of 2018, I was rallying to get her money to keep from being evicted. And then by March of 2019, on the same day that my aunt, the one I had mentioned earlier, on the same day that I found out my aunt passed away, I was evicted, albeit wrongfully, but I was evicted. So I spent three weeks effectively homeless in 2019. And I've had to fight through that nightmare of how that all came down and how it came together. And as bad as it was, I didn't miss a day of work. I didn't miss teaching a class. I stayed with friends and I thankfully had the money to be able to get a new place and I got help in getting the new place. But for three weeks, I didn't have a real legit concrete place to stay. And I was teetering. I've had some bad times, but you don't quit and you stay ready for whatever happens. Had I been evicted maybe three months earlier, I would have been really screwed. I got evicted at a time where I had saved up a bunch of money, plus I was working. So I was able to at least get clothes. I was able to help out the people I was staying with, got a hotel room for one night, paid a security deposit. And by early April of last year, I got into a new place and then the rebuild fully began. But you can't you can't let yourself get completely defeated by things because as part of that is the competitive because I played baseball, I played football. I've always been competitive. I was a all city, all state track athlete. I've been competitive my whole life and you're not going to beat me. 
That's that's my thing. I don't care if it takes forever. You're not going to beat me. And I was not going to allow myself to get beat by this. So if it meant that I had to double down, I couldn't go to my aunt's funeral. I couldn't, admittedly, that messes with me. I couldn't go to my aunt's funeral. I couldn't be there for my mom. I had to fight. And when you got to fight, it's going to hurt. But you're going to win. And that's that's what I did. And that's why I keep doing. And I use that as just the, the motto of everything else. The stay ready is a part of me. Because I had to. I had no choice. I watched my mom beat cancer. And she was the same way. She was not going to let it beat her. And didn't. She's still here. 27 years after the diagnosis, she's still here. So it's like if cancer didn't beat her, the sure as hell wasn't going to beat me. So I said, all right, cool. We'll, we'll get through this. And I did. And it's a, um, it's little things like that that drive me. And I think that when I look at what I'm doing going forward with talking to people, because my whole thing is about telling stories and helping people and brands tell better stories and explain who they are and where they came from. I can do that because I've had to, I've, I'm constantly telling my own story and it evolves and it always comes back to the question of how, because it's always who, what, when, where, why, how. Those are the tenets of journalism. I always focus on how and why, because that tells a story more than anything else. The other questions fill seats, fill spots. Why and how put you on the road to getting where you need to go. And I'm still trying to fully embrace and find my how, but I know I can help others do that same thing because this is what life is. And it's not always easy. And I've kind of become a little bit more accepting of that in the last five, six years. But when I got to where I am, I got there because of my willingness willingness to fight and knowing that 90% of the time I've got to do it solo. I'm my only child too. So it's like I'm used to doing it solo. So it's a little bit easier for me to like, hey, this is what we're going to do. Ain't nobody do. Ain't nobody got this but you. So what the hell you're worried about? Go do it. And I had to get it done and I got it done. So that's where I and that's how that's largely how I got where I am now. But every day is a learning experience for me. And I'm actually very grateful for that experience. I love that. And I think that that's I just think that that's such an important thing for people to hear. And thank you so much for sharing all that. And you kind of touched on it a little just then, but you have this background in writing, journalism, broadcasting. Can you talk a little bit about how you want to start working with people, consulting, coaching, public speaking? I'd love to hear more about it. I'm really excited, actually, because I think that that would be such a great natural progression for you. I've always wanted to do a TED Talk. That's where this whole thing kind of came from. I started doing the podcast because I guess it really starts with the podcast. The podcast is J. Scott Confidential. It's where I had Laura on earlier this year in episode 107. And that podcast was initially my outlet because as a journalist, you can only do so much. But I had so many stories to tell. And I've been thinking about doing a podcast like that for maybe three years. I just didn't have the time and I wasn't in the right headspace. And suddenly I was in between jobs. In 2015, after I'd come to New Jersey, and I'm like, all right, I can get this thing kind of the basis of this together. And then I get hired at the new job in Philadelphia. But I was always in the back of my mind, like, I want to be able to either just talk about certain things that I can't fully get into on air, but I want to do it my way. And whether it's telling a personal story or sharing an opinion, or eventually it kind of morphed into talking to other people. 
that was what the whole basis of Jay Scott Confidential is and was. It was going to be a sports podcast initially, but then I realized that a lot of sports podcasts, they all sound the same. They're all a bunch of meatheads who say the same stupid things over and over again. And as much as I love sports, I don't want to limit myself to that. I don't want to fit into that mold. So where do you go? You start talking. And I noticed very quickly that the shows that got the most traction were the shows that strayed away from sports or use sports as kind of a setup for something. And I really go into just talking. And it became a thing where, okay, this works. And where it came around to me wanting to kind of help people tell their stories was the first interview I did on the show. And I don't really like call them interviews. I like to say they're conversations was 2016 ESPN was running the first major 30 for 30 OJ made in America, the five night thing about OJ Simpson. That was just magnificent. And I was going to talk about it as a subject on the podcast anyway, because it was right around the time of the NBA finals. It was going to be this whole thing. And I just happened to be scanning Twitter. I'm on Twitter at J Scott Smith, J A Y S E O two T's S M I T H. I always got to spell it out for people, but I was on Twitter and I, um, my friend Janae, She's a reporter at the uh, NPR station in in the Bay Area. She lives in Oakland, but works obviously out of the Bay Area. Sent out this tweet with a link to a story in the Los Angeles Times. Now, I've known Janae for, at this point, about six and a half, seven years. And I don't know why this conversation had never really been breached. I just didn't think about it. But she tweets out that she was a subject of this feature in the LA Times. And I read it, and I see this picture of her standing next to Christopher Darden the prosecutor from the OJ Simpson trial. And I looked at her and then I looked at Chris and they look like the spitting image of each other. And my jaw hits the floor and says, wait, what? And I, I immediately text her and just say, so um, you just weren't going to tell me that your dad is Chris Darden. And she calls me back and she says to me, she's like, I don't know why I thought I just never, we never thought to talk about it. Well, would you be willing to come on the podcast and tell your story? And she said, sure. And my whole thing was, everybody has a story. And it became kind of like, anytime I had somebody on is when my show did numbers. So I started to make that more of a thing. It would do numbers, or when I would have like personal reflections of stuff, there'll be those two. And my thing is, if I want to tell somebody's story, it's better to let them tell it in their own voice. Let them be comfortable doing it. Because anybody who listens to the podcasts I do when I talk to people, and nearly all my guests have been women, is I don't interject much when they're talking because I want them to be able to tell it unfettered, uninterrupted. I want them to say it. Plus, you know, the optics of a man interrupting a woman mid-sentence, not a good thing. So I try to make sure I don't do that. And I want to make sure that they tell their story authentically from them. It started to get the gears turning in my head when I've had a couple of companies approach me about how to tell better stories and how to put stories together. So last year, it was a little more than a year ago, I was in Philadelphia and this company was this think tank was doing a series of podcasts focused around, really focused around uh, returning citizens is what they are more referred referred to as these were juvenile lifers. These were guys who were teenagers who were sentenced to life in prison for either violent crimes or they were over sentenced to prison because of certain crimes. And they'd be 16, 17, 18 years old, sentenced to life in prison. 
when Governor Tom Wolf signed that decree, putting an end to juvenile lifers, so many of these guys had their sentences suddenly commuted. But they've done 25, 27, 28 years. One guy did 34 years in prison. They go, when his teenagers come out and they're in their 50s, and they're trying to tell the story of life back on the outside when they spent their entire adult life and the better end of their teenage years in the prison system. They brought me in to kind of help thinking that I was going to be able just to tell them how to produce a podcast and whatnot. But my whole thing was, it's like two thirds of the podcast is the story you tell. And you've got to find the how in your story. How did you get here? Or how are you recovering? Or how, how, how have you been able to maintain? How did you end up in jail? How did you survive in there? Your whole story is based on how. So once you ask your question, ask yourself that question, then we can put that podcast together and you can hear a pin drop in the room because now they got it. And I stood in that room at the same time and I said, well, I'll be damned. I think I got something because each one of these guys had a story, but they just didn't know where to start. If you're a company that's starting, for example, you have to know what you want to convey to people on the outside. And the most authentic way to do that is to tell your story. You can say that, yeah, we're a tech company that does A, B, C, and D, or we're a law firm that focuses on A, B, C, and D. That's cool. And it tell, you tell me what you did, but doesn't tell me who you are. Doesn't tell me what you did to get here. Doesn't tell me how you got here. How'd you get here? I want to know your story. Who started this company? Okay, the person who started this company, how did you come up with the idea for this? And as soon as you say that, you have to force the person to think. I tell my students all the time, don't ask yes and no questions. Any question you ask almost always should be how, why, or what. But you don't do just anything that can be hit with a simple yes or no. I need to know about you. It's one thing to say, we do A, B, C, and D. It's another thing to say, this company started with an idea. What's the idea? You explain the idea. Well, how did, well, how did this come about? You want to connect with somebody. Pretty much brands are what their story dictates. And if you have a brand that doesn't have a story, it just is what it is. It's going to sit there like the house by the side of the road and watch everything go by, to quote the late Ernie Harwell. But if your brand has a story, it has a meaning. It tells the tale. When I think of what Laura's doing, for example, Laura's law firm has a story. That's why she was on the podcast, to tell the story of how that came about. It's not just simply she started a law firm. It's because she started a law firm because she was tired of dealing with the BS that was going on in the one that she worked for. And she, and she felt she could better serve people. That makes me want to work with you because now I know your story. The story behind everything down to branding, down to logos, all that. I'm, also, I'm obsessive about logos as well. Especially in sports, I'm obsessive about team logos, like why they chose this color. Why did you choose this emblem? Why is it here? Why is it a circle and not a square? What's the meaning of this here, that there? When I created the logo for J. Scott Confidential, I wanted to base it kind of on the old Detroit Tiger, Detroit Piston logos. It's very simple, circular logo with a mic in it and the name and when it was established. But if you just look at the logo, it's a basic blue logo. You don't understand there's a story behind each. The brand colors are blue and white, which are the colors of my fraternity, Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. The microphone obviously is because of radio, but the microphone is also the focal point of anything in radio. That mic is pretty much what got me here. JSC for J. Scott Confidential and the established date, established 2016. That's just what I can pull off of looking at one logo. Everything has a story. My thing is, is helping you tell the story to get you out there, get you to make you more 
more it's more received more well received i can't go through full marketing plans that's not my thing but i can certainly set your brand up to tell who you are it's up to you to be able to get the rest of that done but sometimes people don't know who you are or don't understand who you are people can see jeff bezos and see this guy who's worth billions upon billions of dollars and just think oh he's just this rich dude who sells a lot of stuff on Amazon and he makes a ton of money and he he can go anywhere in the world and he wears weird clothes and all this other. You, you would say that or you could go back and look at his story of how he developed Amazon sitting in his apartment off of one computer running a set of code. And he has this handwritten banner that said over his computer that said Amazon.com. And when you hear that story and then you see where he is, it makes you want, it, it really makes you really compelled into how he built this. How did you do that? That's the. That's the essence of everything, at least for me, is how can you convey your story? Because by the time you start this business, that's not when the hard work starts. The hard work started well before that. Help people understand what that hard work was that got you here. And that's what your story is. That's where I got that feeling. When I knew that I could tell my story and I knew when I can get somebody to sit down, either sit in front of me or go over the phone or nowadays Zoom or Skype or whatever, and they tell me their story. My whole thing is, is like when we come out on the back end of this thing, people are going to have a better understanding of who you are and why you do things. And that's going to draw people in. And that's what I feel as a brand storyteller or as a consultant. That's what I bring. That's what I add. And my thing is, is looking for companies who are willing to willing to kind of either looking to tell their story or tell it in a better way. What could appeal to people? What could draw people in depending on the plan of action that you have. My thing would be working with a company to get a plan of action of what points do you want to make about how you came about and how that's going to appeal to your audience. Who's your audience? Who are you trying to get this out to? Who are you trying to appeal to? Who are you trying to bring in? There's so many levels to this. It's layers. It's like layers to an onion. And your story is so interwoven and all that. And most people don't take the time to do it. That's the crazy thing. When I learned the story of Nintendo, the video game company, everybody knows it's about video games. Nintendo is all about Super Mario Brothers. And and now that Nintendo Switch is a multi-billion dollar company. Most people didn't know that Nintendo has been around since the 1800s. It was a game company, but they made board games and card games in Japan. I didn't know that till like three, four years ago. So I, when I saw somebody say that Nintendo had been founded in like 1899 or something like that, I was like, what the, that's not possibly true. And I looked it up. I was like, no, started as a company that made playing cards in the 1800s. There's a story behind everything. It's just a matter of the right people telling it. And that's what I feel I can do going forward with JSC Media, where I can obviously do consulting through what what we call Blue Phoenix uh, Media Consulting. I can obviously, the media aspect also goes into the podcast itself, videos, working on getting into doing more voiceover work, more narration, multiple things here. Because as much as I enjoy being a journalist, I know that this is fleeting and I got a shelf life. And once this business shows me the door, I got to have a, I got to have a soft place to land. So why don't I set it up myself? I think that's amazing. And it's so incredible to hear how eloquently you can share how people can identify their brand story and share that. 
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to the We Grow Together podcast. We so, so appreciate your support. It would mean the absolute world to us if you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Shout it from the rooftops. Share it with all your friends. Text it to them. Share it on social media. And you can tag us at Flourish. Westchester. Make sure that if you leave a review that you also include your Instagram handle so that we can reach out to you because every single episode, including these two episodes, part one and part two, we are going to announce a winner of a free month at Flourish. And even if you're not local to the area, you'll get access to things like our social media workshop and our money management workshop. So huge thank you. And if you shout it out on social media, make sure that you also tag me at Laura MD Francesco. And me, Casey, at Casey Flo. And you can tag me, Lindsay, at Sweet Green Soul. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Don't forget to tune in to part two. Laura Francesco, founder and CEO of Dean Street Law. It's a corporate law firm that helps you with everything corporate law and has tons of free resources and guides on our website that you can find everything from protecting your company from liability, forming a startup, and the different types of entities, all the way to intellectual property and social media. So if you'd like some free information on the legal aspects of your business, head over to deanstreetlaw.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at deanstreetlaw. We provide a lot of free information. And always feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. Thank you. Bye.